You're listening to Expanding Horizons, the podcast of the Unitarian Church of South Australia, a home of progressive spirituality and free religious thought and action since 1854. The views expressed in these podcasts are those of the speaker and are not intended to represent the position of the church itself or of the worldwide Unitarian Universalist movement. For more information, visit unitariansa.org.au. Good morning everyone and welcome. It's a great thing that Unitarians have been going in South Australia since 1854. Everyone is welcome, no matter what your religious or ethnic heritage, no matter what your background. And we recognise that we're on the traditional lands of the Ghana people. We respect their elders past and present. Uh, Some notices. You can make a complete day of it today, really, because at one o'clock... Uh, we have a touch of Mozart concert with Brendan and Margaret performing a particular piano concerto, and uh, that will be very enjoyable. Uh, then this weekend we have our young women going through the ordeal of walking the Pioneer Women's Trail, and they are finishing at Hazelwood Park, Burnside, 3:30 p.m this afternoon, or thereabouts. Everyone's welcome to uh, welcome them to their final destination, and I'm sure they'll enjoy to be cheered on at the end. A few people haven't yet uh, delivered wine to the office who have pledged it for the Catherine Helen Spence oration coming up, so maybe next Sunday would be convenient, and then there's a list where your name can be ticked off. That should do for now. Just mentioning that on the way out, contributions can be made either with the tap and pay service or or cash. We are an independent self-governing church. And now some music. of tyranny and authoritarianism. As long as people of each faith can light their own flame, together we can help overcome the darkness in the world. And now we'll sing the hymn, We Shall Overcome. We're a bit short on lyrics, so... Brendan is going to sing through once and then we're going to sing through 
that particular verse twice. So the, the key part is the words in the middle, and we will follow with Brendan. Thank you. regular part of our service where people have the opportunity to share personal joys and concerns. I'll begin by lighting the first candle and this is indeed a candle of both joy and so if you would like to join me in prayer or at least a quiet contemplation of what we've heard there is always much to be concerned about. We pray for peace in the Middle East and around the world. We pray that peace may come to the hearts of those tens of thousands of families affected by the escalation of conflict in the Middle East. While there is much to be concerned about, we acknowledge the joys in our lives as well. Whether it be from Animals, we can be grateful. Vintage cars, we can be grateful. And especially good neighbours and the support and kindness we have from other people. We pray that extends across the world. Thank you. And now I'll invite Anne to come up with a reading for today. As I've printed on the screen there, it's from a novel gathered in in those days, they used to publish bits of novels in newspapers and periodicals, so you had to keep buying them to get the whole story. And Catherine Helen Spence described it as the novel into which she put the most of herself. And uh, we'll hear from Anne about the hero Kenneth, a boy believed to be an orphan sent to live on a sheep station in outback Australia. Kenneth looked at him again. There was nothing in the stranger's dress or demeanor that was at all clerical. Lay preachers, however, are not particular in their attire and have other avocations to season their talk. But this man did not look like a dissenting lay preacher or an Anglican lay reader. He was more like a philosopher or a savant. 
But such men are not nowadays so satisfied that their work is done under divine direction. I see what you are thinking of, said the stranger. You are wondering if I'm a minister, but I'm no preacher. I'm only a wandering sort of bush missionary or evangelist, you might call me, only that no one has sent me but my master. I have received no ordination at the hands of man. Then you go from station to station holding service, but yet not preaching, said Kenneth. The stranger replied, not holding service, endeavoring to lead worship. You do not see the difference. Few folk do. Service is a term derived from the old temple ritual with its regularity, its pomp, its sacrifice, something, in fact, done to the glory of God. Worship, as I take it, is just the uplook of the human soul to the highest. No service to God. God needs none. Beautifully read. Thanks, Anne. And uh, now some more music. introduce Carolyn Spooner, who has already publicly presented a talk on Unitarians in South Australia through her work with the State Library. And I know from having um, witnessed that presentation that she's of great intelligence and has a great sense of humour and has a great heart. So Carolyn, please come forward. We look forward to your presentation. Thank you. Thank you, Chris, for the invitation to be here. It's lovely to be here. I wish I didn't have a cough and a cold, so hopefully I won't cough too much. Earlier this year, I had the idea of a series of talks called Keeping the Faith. And the first one I thought I would start with was the Unitarians, because at the State Library, as you may know, our main building is called the Catherine Helen Spence Wing, and I knew that she was a Unitarian. So this was a talk for a general audience, and I think they were delighted to learn more about a little-known faith. But you, of course, will know 90% of what I'm talking about. But I hope you'll find the 10% interesting. Our story begins some 65,000 years ago, when the Ghana people told their stories and kept their memories of this place alive in their oral and artistic traditions. But fast forward to 1836, when the European colonisers arrived in South Australia. Following the thinking of Edward Given Wakefield, Robert Googer and George Fife Angus, the British Parliament decided that the new experimental province should have a firm separation of government and religion. For this reason, South Australia was the only Australian colony in which the Church of England was not the established church. 
although a colonial chaplain was appointed who was a member of the Church of England. So South Australia was a haven for people of different faiths, especially dissenters from the orthodoxy of the Anglican Church, hence the title Paradise of Dissent for Douglas Pike's monumental history, which states that South Australia was the first colony in the British Empire to separate church and state. The first relevant reference to Unitarians that I could find in the wonderful newspaper website Trove appeared in December 1840 from an anonymous Unitarian who writes that we have as yet no place of worship here. In fact, I am not aware whether there are any Unitarians in Adelaide besides our own family. The writer is anxious to see the establishment of a Unitarian place of worship in this city. A month later, in January 1841, a second Unitarian writes that he hopes it won't be too long before there are sufficient numbers to have courage to form themselves into a congregation. I say courage because everyone knows how much their creed differs from others and what difficulties must be overcome with regard to the opinions formed of them by the rest of the community. After those first letters in 1840-41, there was nothing relevant in the newspapers except a comment at a meeting at the Queen's Head Hotel by a newly elected member of the Legislative Council in March 1851 in the first elections that there are no Unitarians in the colony. Now here's a fun fact. The Queen's Head is the oldest pub building existing in South Australia. But in June 1854, there was some action. The library has the minutes of a meeting on the 27th of June 1854 of persons favourable to the establishment of a Unitarian congregation in Adelaide, held at the offices of F. Clark and Sons in Blythe Street. And here's Blythe Street on the wonderful 1936 map of Adelaide by W.H. Edmonds. Present were E.M. Martin in the chair... William Blythe, Arthur Hardy, A.S. Clark, J.H. Clark, William Kay, John Craig and Edward Marden, who resolved to call a meeting of the Unitarians of the province by advertisement. So who were these people? Edward Montgomery Martin arrived in South Australia with his wife and children in 1851, aged 44. He was a chemist and he co-founded an ironmongery business in Adelaide. His wife ran a boarding house in Grenfell Street. Algernon Sidney Clark was the manager of the family's engineering business, Francis Clark & Sons in Blythe Street. This company did the lighting for the first football game played under lights at Adelaide Oval in 1885. Now this shows the first Melbourne night football game, but you get the gist. Sidney Clark was also involved in many business activities and assisting community organisations. This is a typical scenario for Unitarians, entrepreneurs in creating better communities. Sidney's brother Howard Clark was also a prominent Unitarian. He became the editor of the Register newspaper and was on the board of the South Australian Institute, which is the forerunner of the State Library. He was described, in effect, as the founder of the South Australian Institute. Another brother, Simmons, was an accountant and an amateur naturalist. Their Unitarian parents, Francis and Caroline, emigrated with their eight children in 1850 
and took up residence in what we now know as Hazelwood Park. And there's such an important and interesting family. I gave a talk on this whole family a couple of years ago because the library has the Clark family papers. William Blythe. He was at the founding meeting to establish a savings bank in 1841 and he was a director. He was also a founding member of the private Adelaide Book Society in 1844, as were several other Unitarians. Arthur Hardy was a pastoralist, barrister, quarry owner in Glen Osmond and a parliamentarian. No relation to Thomas Hardy the winemaker though. William Kay arrived in Adelaide on the Sea Queen in 1850. He was an auctioneer for a time, then he became prominent in financial circles and was a member of parliament. His obituary refers to his kindness of heart, his hospitality and how charitable he was to the poor and distressed. His brother, Robert Kay, also a Unitarian, was the secretary of the South Australian Institute for 45 years, from 1859 to 1904. He introduced a country lending service and was a wonderful administrator of the public library. John Craig arrived 1838. He was a gentleman farmer. Now, there are several J. Craigs in Trove, and I wasn't sure if this was the right one, but it might be. Here he is at a meeting of the Agricultural and Horticultural Society, associating with high-profile people like G.S. Kingston. Edward Marden was a hat maker in England and arrived in 1850 on the Sultana. Now, the only useful reference I could find was to his wife, Hannah, also a Unitarian, who the newspaper reported was possessed of a noteworthy character and gained the respect and warm friendship of all who knew her. In the week beginning the 1st of July 1854, this group of people, as well as Jay Waterman, who might have been an attorney, advertised in all the newspapers for people interested in forming a Unitarian congregation to meet at the Freemasons Tavern on the 11th of July. This is one of those advertisements in the Adelaide Times. The meeting was duly held on the 11th of July 1854, again in the Freemasons Tavern. The group resolved to appoint a minister as soon as one year's salary, £400, had been raised through subscriptions, which didn't take long. So in October that year, the committee authorised the British and Foreign Unitarian Association to select a suitable candidate. And of course, they chose the 30-year-old Reverend John Crawford Woods of Newport, Isle of Wight. He arrived with his wife Susan aboard the Quito on the 19th of December 1855. He was to remain in this position for 35 years, much beloved, until his retirement in 1889. The library has his four volumes of handwritten reminiscences, which we've had transcribed. He writes, Our first meal in Adelaide was taken at the boarding house of Mrs Martin in Grenfell Street. We then found the office of Francis Clark and Sons in Blythe Street and were driven to Hazelwood, the residence of Mrs Francis Clark where we were hospitably entertained. She was a charming old lady, a walking encyclopedia of information, very clever and good and kind. Her family were very pleasant people to associate with. On the first Sunday after our arrival, we had a religious service in Mrs Clark's drawing room, which was attended by a few friends besides the family. Among these was Edward Montgomery Martin. 
On the second Sunday, a service was held in the house of Mr. Martin at Osmond Terrace, Norwood, which is just down the end of this street. Public worship began in a rented room in the city on the 7th of October, 1855. The opening service of the Adelaide Unitarian Congregation took place yesterday in their temporary place of worship, the Landmart, adjoining the exchange. The service was conducted by the Reverend Woods. He must have been a dramatic speaker. He concludes, The reign of sectarianism in its most odious forms is nearly over. Intolerance totters upon its throne, and the mists of superstition are gradually being dispelled before the rays of the sun of righteousness. The reverend gentleman concluded one of the most Catholic and intellectual discourses we have for some time listened to. The room was well filled. Land was acquired to build a church in Wakefield Street, and the library has the indenture conveyance document for part of Acre 302, dated 29th of November, 1856. The foundation stone was laid the next month, the 23rd of December. It was to be built by English and Brown for £1,600 and was designed in the early English Gothic style. English and Brown were the builders of the State Library's Institute building, so there's a good connection. About 100 ladies and gentlemen were present. It seems like a lot to me. The usual formalities were gone through under the able presidency of John Baker, MLC, who was treasurer of the church at that time. He was also South Australia's second premier, lasting for 11 days in August, September 1857. I think things were pretty volatile in those days. <laughs> Shortly after six o'clock, they adjourned to a large room connected with the Gresham Hotel, where some 200 persons sat down to a social tea gathering. The Unitarian place of worship was opened on Sunday last, when two appropriate and impressive sermons were preached by the Reverend Woods. In spite of the weather, the church was filled in the morning, and in the evening it was densely crowded by a deeply attentive congregation. The choral parts of the service were sustained by a numerous and efficient choir, aided by a powerful harmonium. One of the people who lent money for the building was Sir Henry Ayres, who lent the trustees £700, and he was a regular and large subscriber to the church. Sir Henry Ayres was a five-time Premier of South Australia. In 1877, our Adelaide letter, this is from the Border Watch in Mount Gambier, wrote, When Solomon made a very unwise remark that there was nothing new under the sun, I presume that he did not foresee the existence of Sir Henry Ayres. At a fundraising dinner for Wesleyan College, the newspaper reported that after the president and the principal of the college had spoken, true to the proverb that he is all things to all men, came Sir Henry Ayres, whom I think the two Ps must have looked upon as rather a black sheep, considering that he's a Unitarian. And this is a rather different view of the church, sort of the back view of it, that the church was considered an ornament to the city. Howard Clark and Lucy Martin were the third Unitarian couple to marry in South Australia and the first to marry in the Wakefield Street Church in October 1858. We have a poster in our collection promoting Reverend Woods' monthly lectures for July 1882. In the morning, the lectures were on the moral and spiritual influences which have sprung from the following great cities. 
Jerusalem, Alexandria, Rome, Constantinople, Geneva, Oxford and Boston. In the evening there were lectures on the early history of Unitarian Christianity. And he conducted divine service, so he was a busy guy. The library also holds a very personal item, Reverend Woods's prayer book with his name and annotations. Now we get a feel for the life of the Unitarian minister in Reverend Woods's reminiscences, which are full of stories showing how he was regarded in Adelaide society. An interesting event in the history of South Australia was a visit paid by His Royal Highness, the Duke of Edinburgh, to the colony. I was present when the Duke laid the foundation stone of the GPO in Adelaide. I had the honour of dining at Government House with the Duke and saying grace. It is perhaps a unique thing for a Unitarian minister to act as chaplain to a royal duke. I think the asking me to do so was creditable to the liberality of the governor, Sir Dominic Daly, who was himself a Roman Catholic. I was always invited to the levies at Government House on the Queen's birthday and with the privilege of the private entree. A more personal side is shown in the diary of Emily Clark, daughter of Francis and Caroline. Christmas was always kept at, at Hazelwood. The swimming bath in the garden was always an attraction on a warm afternoon. Various gentlemen sat and smoked. The Reverend J.C. Woods, while holding forth, edged his chair too near the bath and suddenly tipped in amid roars of laughter. A game of cricket in the paddock was followed by tea in the veranda. Three years after the Unitarian Church began in Adelaide, in 1859, some women of the church, including Catherine Helen Spence, decided to establish a juvenile library in the hope, they said, of exciting a taste for reading among the younger members of the congregation. It's believed to be the first children's library in Australia. Catalogues of the library were issued every few years. Some books were religious books, but the greater number combined amusement with instruction and I can see a book dating to 1873 here. The library opened with 109 books and 21 subscribers. Catherine Helen Spencer's niece, Lucy Morris, remembered the library. Adelaide was already a city of many churches when I first began to take an interest, sometime in the 1870s, in preachers and congregations. I attended church regularly when I was a little older, the reason was that the Unitarian Church had a children's library. The books were not religious works, but excellent tales of travel, adventure and romance. The children of the congregation were allowed to borrow them, which we did with great pleasure and profit. The library was in use for 110 years, closing in 1969, and was then in storage for another 21 years. The 700 books which remained at the end were donated to the State Library in 1990 by Audrey Abbey, a former Unitarian children's librarian. The collection provides a rare glimpse of a functioning 19th century children's library, much like the circulating library in the front room of the Institute building. There are beloved books like the Dr. Doolittle series. Did anybody love Dr. Doolittle? Ah, oh, just gorgeous and different inscriptions. The second one is a Unitarian travelling library. Catherine Helen Spence maintained an interest in the library and in children's literature all her life, publishing 17 articles on children's books in newspapers. And the library has an oral history with Launcelot Crompton, who remembers her.
In 2003, South Australian historian Dr Barbara Wall prepared an annotated catalogue of the Unitarian Children's Library. And you can find it in our Children's Literature Library Guide. Two years after the Unitarian women formed the Children's Library, Reverend Woods established a Sunday school in 1861. In his reminiscences, he says he was ably supported by a very efficient staff of teachers. Of these, I may mention Miss Spence, Miss Martin, Miss Simpson, my late wife, the late Mrs Robert Kay, and the late Miss Connie Kay. In 1872, we find the annual gathering of the Unitarian Sunday School took place in the large building known as Freeman Street Congregational Church recently purchased by A. Simpson and Son, by whom it was lent. So let's meet the Simpson family. Alfred Simpson was one of the founders of the Unitarian Church, and his daughter, Catherine, was Reverend Woods's third wife. Simpson was one of Adelaide's most enterprising citizens. He introduced new and valuable labour-saving machinery, which employed a large number of hands, by whom he was esteemed for his kindliness and consideration. And this is my old Simpson Pope agitator and ringer washing machine. <laughs> I got it second hand and it's still going. As long as you keep your hair out of the ringer. <laughs> Alfred's son, Alfred Muller Simpson, carried on the business. He said his business was his principal recreation, but he was on the board of the Botanic Gardens and we owe him thanks for the kiosk. And he was the treasurer of Unitarian Church for 16 years. And from the days when little boys wore dresses, the library has his pink trim dress and his collection of Unitarian Church papers. And there's a plaque to him on North Terrace, manufacturer and philanthropist. Alfred Muller Simpson's son, Alfred Moxon, donated records of the church to the State Library. And his great-grandson, Ant Simpson, continues the family's philanthropy and he's donated funds to the library to process the family archives. So all these Simpsons are very complicated. But let's leave the city and move to the hills. Farmers and Unitarians and brothers-in-law John Monks and Francis Duffield arrived on the ship Delhi in 1839 and a few years later found their way to the hills where monks brought land on the traditional land of the Peramank people near Littlehampton, which he called Shady Grove Farm. Duffield brought land nearby, which he called Cobden Farm. And you can see Shady Grove and Cobden Grange on this gorgeous map of Mount Barker and districts by W.H. Edmonds, made in 1936. So below Shady Grove, you can see the name Miss Monks, and CEM for cemetery. And because education is important to Unitarians, John Monks built a little school on the property for the local children in 1854. Then when a government school opened 11 years later, he closed the school and gave the building to the Unitarian Church for services and some land for a cemetery. On Sunday last, December 24, a schoolroom capable of seating 100 persons was opened for Unitarian Christian worship at Shady Grove near Handorf by the Reverend J.C. Woods of Adelaide. There was a good attendance on the occasion and at the close of the service it was announced that public worship would be conducted there every Sunday for the future. 
And a few months ago, I visited Shady Grove on Tadmore Lane, and obviously you've all been there. The, that information board is excellent. Who put that together? Yeah, brilliant. Well done. The library has a booklet by a Duffield descendant telling us that Tadmore was an ancient Syrian city far from civilization, situated in a beautiful spot in the hills. The cemetery is historically interesting, but also important because it's unspoiled native scrub. So I was pleased to see a box at the gate with the leaflets showing the main plants like the kangaroo grass, the running postman and the wattles. Francis and Alice Duffield's grave has got lots of kangaroo grass and the library has a book of Francis Duffield's sermons. Francis' son Thomas Duffield was born at Shady Grove. He became a senior public servant heading the local government department. He also took great interest in the formation and early progress of the Public Service Association. And in the first issue of the Public Service Review, in 1892, we find he was a founding secretary along with Arthur Searcy and the vice president, Charles Todd. And you all know about Charles Todd, founder of the Overland Telegraph. And a, a colleague of mine is Anthony Duffield, who's a sixth generation descendant of Francis. Another grave that caught my eye was that of John Dowie, the sculptor. Now, not many people would know he was a Unitarian. The library has his bust of the polar explorer Sir Hubert Wilkins and the anthropologist Charles Mountford. There are also graves of the Crompton family who are connected with the Clark and Martin families in various ways. Adelaide in the late 19th century had a distinctive religious culture, the dominant church being Anglican, but there was a high proportion of non-Anglican Protestants, mostly Methodists, Baptists and Congregationalists, and a high level of regular church going. In one newspaper, Unitarian is shown as miscellaneous. In the census of 1881, 747 people regarded themselves as Unitarians, up from 666 five years previously. Local figures in the census show they came from prosperous suburbs like North Adelaide, St Peter's, Kensington, Norwood, Burnside, Unley. They were educated people who were responsive to religious liberalism, politically conservative but socially progressive, maybe something like today or today's teal voters. In our Unitarian Church archives is a list of around 100 seat holders and subscribers something of a who's who of Adelaide society, and a seating plan because people rented their seats, a bit like buying a member's ticket for the footy. And I've got a handout of these two lists, which you can take away with you if you're interested. In the seat places, we see the names we've met already, the Clarks, Woods and Martins, but it's time to meet Miss Spence in the context of delivering the sermon. Unlike Catholicism, where a sermon was optional in a service, preaching was at the centre of Protestant worship. So a large proportion of the people of Adelaide listened to a sermon every week, and the Unitarians delivered exceptionally meaty sermons on substantial themes. Our copy of Martha Turner's Melbourne sermon belonged to Catherine Helen Spence. She arrived in South Australia with her family in 1839, becoming a teacher, a foster parent and a writer. 
She campaigned for the introduction of social reforms, especially in the areas of education and childcare. In the mid-1850s, she met Emily Clark, and in 1856, Spence left the Church of Scotland and joined Emily as a member of the Unitarian Church, which fitted her ideals. Among the Unitarians, Spence discovered a God of love as an embodiment of justice and benevolence, rather than a stern, judgmental God. She found this liberating. Spence said, I did not enter into my human responsibility to God and man until my eyes were opened by the preaching of the Unitarian faith by Mr. Woods. She also believed God was revealed through nature and in science and in poetry and art. She was also a fierce campaigner for electoral reform and for women's suffrage. She became the first woman in Australia to stand for political office when she stood for the Federal Convention of 1897. She didn't get elected, sadly. You can see that this How to Vote card, the person wasn't going to vote for her. There's not a cross next to her name. In 1878, she was asked to read the sermon at service and subsequently began to preach on a fairly regular basis. She preached about 100 times for 30 years in Wakefield Street, but also in Melbourne and Sydney and overseas in Canada and the USA. The library holds the manuscripts of 58 of these sermons and prayers, all written in her difficult handwriting, and the sermons cover a range of themes. This one is on optimism, which begins, The most wonderful person I ever saw in my life was Helen Keller. She saw her as a girl of 13 in July 1893. Because they're so difficult to read, the libraries had the sermons transcribed by the wonderful Dr Barbara Wall, and you can read them all online through our catalogue, where you can see a link to the sermons as well as to her letters and a diary. And you can also see an index to the topics of her sermons. Spencer's mentor, Reverend Woods, retired in 1889. At his long farewell sermon, he said, I have received much kindness from members of various denominations and have lived in terms of friendship with members of the Hebrew race and Jewish faith, of the Church of Rome and the Church of England, with Presbyterians, Baptists, Independents, Wesleyans, Bible Christians, Swedenborgians and others. It is only right to say that whatever may have been our success, we have not been wanting in efforts to make our peculiar views known and to support them by the best arguments in our power. Nor have large audiences been wanting. In times past, crowds have come to hear. The newspaper reported on a farewell social to Reverend Woods and his wife and presented him with a sum of money signed by the committee, including the usual suspects but a few new names, W. Everard and S. Huber. But I was delighted to discover that there was a Unitarian in the first group of ships that arrived in 1836. William Everard arrived as an 18-year-old aboard the Africaine. He was in both Houses of Parliament. He was a Minister of Education, Director of the National Bank, and in typical Unitarian community-minded spirit, he was on the boards of the Botanic Gardens, the University and the Public Library. He gave a piece of land adjoining the Unitarian Church in Wakefield Street. Samuel Huber had a variety of jobs in the outback, on the Overland Telegraph, and he led an expedition to find a stock route from Udna Data to Coolgardie in Western Australia. He married Edith Cook, 
who was the first woman to matriculate for entry to the University of Adelaide in 1877. And a few years later, she became headmistress of the Advanced School for Girls. Captain Huber lost his life in the Anglo-Boer War, and his name is shown on the South African War Memorial, Captain S.G. Huber. Has anybody seen that as you've walked past the War Memorial? Look out for it next time. There have been 61 ministers of the Unitarian Church. The second one was Reverend Charles Whittam. He'd been influenced by Catherine Helen Spencer's ideas on education. He was inspector of schools in the education department and was president of the Public Service Association. In 1894-95, the newspaper Quiz and the Lantern ran a series of articles, profiles really, of church services around Adelaide called Round the Churches. Every Sunday for 14 months, the editor of the paper, Harry Evans, writing under the pen name of Quiz, attended 59 services in churches of all major denominations in the city and suburbs and wrote a vivid, sometimes waspish, account of what he saw and heard. Number 32 was Miss C.H. Spence at the Unitarian Church. It is many years since Quiz first heard a lady preach. The announcement, however, that Miss Spence was to occupy the pulpit was enticing enough to induce Quiz to once more include the Wakefield Street Sanctuary in his round of the churches. Miss Spence is a lady of very marked individuality. Her voice, rendered pleasant by a slight Scotch accent, was clear and firm. The other Unitarian minister that Quiz looked at was the Reverend Alexander Wilson. In the personal gossip column of the critic newspaper... The Reverend Williams is described as an intellectual preacher of a very high order, tall and of commanding presence, broad-shouldered and deep-chested, with intellectual features and the deep-cut student indent between the eyes. He is a man of might, physically and intellectually. His oratory has a rugged fluency. His diction is characterised by a fine felicity of phrase and polish, his utterance is clear and penetrating. Sounds rather sexy, doesn't he? <laughs> to me, he does. <laughs> but sadly, I could find no photograph of him. <laughs> so here is Round the Church's number 18 with the Reverend Alexander Wilson. Quiz starts out. The Unitarians may be intellectual, but they certainly have not the gift of proselytising, which I think means attempting to convert someone from one belief to another. He goes on to write, The evening was hot, and every worshipper present was wishing himself or herself at home in close propinquity to a shower bath. Fans and handkerchiefs were disturbing the air at a furious rate, and when the organist up aloft began to play the voluntary, there was a listless air manifest on every face. And amazingly, the library has one of these very fans as part of the Simpson family archive. Quiz continued, now for the minister. Mr Wilson is quite a young man, on the right side of 40. He wears a black gown, such as one is accustomed to see in the Scotch churches, and he also wears a lock of hair, which irresistibly calls to mind the tuft on the head of a cockatoo. <laughs> it may seem unkind to say so, but Mr Wilson, as a minister of the gospel, is somewhat of an anomaly. A man who lisps in the pulpit cannot expect to exert much influence. 
the man who lisps is the butt of everybody on the stage. When a minister says, and the Lord fed under Samuel, he is incurring a serious responsibility which he would do well to recognise. Rightly or wrongly, we don't seem to respect a man with a lisp. Still, Quiz does not wish to linger over such a matter as a lisp. If there had been anything like life in the service, he would not have referred to the subject at all. But everything, save the singing above referred to, was so inexpressibly dreary. Oh dear. And it goes on in that vein. It is really worth a read. In fact, the whole series is worth a read for really getting the feel of the life of Adelaide in the late 19th century in the city of churches. And to find them, you go to Trove. Is anybody here who doesn't know about Trove? Well, you can talk to me later. Just, just Google Trove and you will find it. And you do an advanced search. Just put in the words round the churches in double quotes as a phrase. And you can put in the title, which was the quiz and the lantern. But Reverend Wilson's world came crashing down in July 1902 when George Hall mining expert sued for dissolution of his marriage on the grounds of his wife's misconduct with the Reverend Alexander Wilson, at one time Unitarian minister. The case is expected to be sensational. And it was. The case took three weeks and the proceedings were reported verbatim in the papers on the front pages. No privacy in those days. The famous barrister, Sir Josiah Simon, was counsel for the husband and cross-examined Mrs Hall about the behaviour of the Reverend Wilson. She said that Wilson did not tell her that he did not intend to preach on the following Sunday and she was not aware that he had arranged for Miss Spence to conduct the services on that day until she entered the church. Spence wrote a letter to her niece about the case. My name has been kept out of the newspapers until today when both the papers gave Mrs Hall's evidence that Miss Spence had the pulpit on the Sunday after Wilson resigned. I think I told you Simon subpoenaed me nearly three weeks ago, but did not call me as a witness, as I could not tell him what he wanted to get out of me. I think, I may say I believe, Wilson is innocent of adultery. But the court found otherwise. And, by the way, Spencer's grave in Brighton and her statue in Light Square are worth a visit. Anybody been down to the grave? Yeah, it's lovely. Yeah, 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 it's lovely. The ministries of the church continued more or less successfully depending on the incumbent in the 20th century. During World War I, Wilfred Harris was in the hot seat. And in 1917, Reverend Harris told the Yes Reinforcements Referendum Committee that the church saw its duty as a nation to come fully in line with the other nations that are fighting for freedom. In 1930, a group of Unitarians started meeting in the Tranmere Masonic Lodge Hall, and the library has the trust deed for the purchase of the lodge. The next incumbent was the Reverend Hale, who was a very active and innovative minister. He used to give talks on ABC Radio 5CL. During World War II, he had the courage of his moral convictions and argued the pacifist case. To the editor, sir, as other ministers of religions have expressed themselves on their conception of a Christian's duty with regard to war, might I also be permitted to state where I personally stand and why. I acknowledge with shame my share of responsibility, however fractional, for the tragic state in which the world finds itself. 
Nevertheless, I refuse to tolerate war in any form or for any purpose. My conscience, influenced by the life and teachings of Christ, tells me that it is my duty to love my enemies, to overcome evil with good, to go the second mile, the third mile, and if necessary, right onto the cross. We must press hard for an immediate armistice and a real world conference. To propose such a thing, I know, is unusual, but so is vital Christianity. In my considered judgment, nothing short of this will deliver us from a tragic impasse. On the 15th of August 1932, we read that the Reverend Hale announced to his congregation that after an anniversary service in the Tranmere Hall, next Sunday, a party of young people would hike back the four and a half miles to the city and he would be with them. I can think of no more inspiring or beautiful service than one held in the picturesqueness of our hills. God is a spirit and is not worshipped in any particular church. The church is where the worship is, whether it is in the open air or in a building. Hiking can do a tremendous lot of good, held on the Sabbath or on any other day. One view he would advance was that not only the Sabbath, but the church and all that was associated with it were made for the people and not the people for the church. And the hike becomes an annual one, as we find on the ninth anniversary service of the Tranmere Uniting Church. And we just know that there's a hike happening at the moment. And I did that pioneer's walk from yeah, Handorf to Hazelwood some years ago. It was, it was a lot of fun. And playing sport was obviously encouraged. Unitarians played tennis in the Adelaide Suburban Association. But the church wasn't sustainable and it closed in 1956. By the 1960s, Church in Wakefield Street was over 110 years old, needing considerable expensive maintenance, so the decision was taken to find alternative accommodation. And eventually, a vacant block came on the market following the subdivision of a large property on Osmond Terrace Nord. And this property belonged to W.H. Edmonds, the magnificent map maker, whose maps we've seen. He lived there until the 1940s and the house is on the Council Heritage Register. Did anybody know that, that W. Edmonds lived there? No. It's, it's quite amazing. Just this last Tuesday, I went to North Road Cemetery where we rededicated his grave. The grave hadn't had a headstone. Because I've um, become so interested in this guy, I got a new headstone put in there and a new plaque as well. It's a very lovely occasion. And I'm going to write a book on Edmonds as one of my retirement projects next year. So I'm going to pluck up the courage to go next door and say to these people, can I come in and have a look at his house? North Road Cemetery, Nailsworth. And Bishop Denise Ferguson of the Anglican Diocese officiated. Do you know Bishop Denise? No, she's, she's lovely. So the Wakefield Street Church was sold to the Public Service Association. There seems to be a nice close link, doesn't there, between the church and the, and the PSA, which I'm happy with because I've been a PSA member for all of my working life. The last service was held on Sunday the 14th of February 1971. The building was demolished in 1973. And being community-minded and interested in preserving their history... As we've heard, the papers of the Adelaide Unitarian Church were deposited in the State Library in 1972. There are 6.5 metres of them, and there's a finding aid listing the contents. The first service at the new Nord Meeting House was held 
on 12th of September 1971. You know all of this. The building, including the manse, designed by architect Eric von Schrammeck, officially opened on October the 3rd, 1971, the anniversary date of the first Unitarian service in South Australia. And wonderfully, the stained glass windows and the organ from the old church were incorporated into the interior decoration. And the people commemorated in the windows we've already met, Matthew Simmons and Effie Clark, William Everard and Arthur Simpson, William and Sarah Kay and Robert's wife Annie Kay. So now that we know something about them, let's look at the names of the seat renters and subscribers from the early days. We've got Clark, Craig, Crompton, Duffield, Townsend, Duraya, the photographer, Everard, Hardy, Kay, Marden, Monk, Henry Rymel. He was a land agent and director of various companies. Simpson, Spence, Heinrich Ludwig Voss ran a stained glass company in Rundle Street, which morphed into Clarkson's Glass. So how many other stories would these people tell? And there's a long list of Unitarians through history. I thought there were some interesting names there. Thomas Jefferson, Beatrix Potter, Kurt Vonnegut, Paul Newman, Bela Bartok, and the inventor of the World Wide Web. Now let's have a look at a few things the State Library has on the Unitarians. There are nearly 300 items in the catalogue on the keyword Unitarian or Unitarianism, including this family history book, My Ancestors Were English, Presbyterians or Unitarians. Because family history is a big thing in the State Library. A historical dictionary of Unitarian Universalism, which is a largely North American concept, which welcomes and incorporates diverse theological perspectives, including the wisdom of other world religions. And its entry for Australia and New Zealand is mainly on South Australia. James Martineau was one of the significant Unitarian writers, and the library has the Reverend Woods's own copy of his Endeavours After the Christian Life. Ralph Waldo Emerson's book Conduct of Life had some interesting ideas. I was pleased to see that he mentions football and cricket. We have a transcript of a talk by a historian of religion, David Hilliard. Does anybody know David Hilliard? Yeah, yeah, wonderful man, wonderful man. He gave this talk at the State Library in 2004 on a series of talks that I organised on Catherine Helen Spence. And it's a great read and you can read it online. Adelaide being a small place, a number of these Unitarian families were interconnected. Margaret Barbalay writes about her mother's family, Clarks, Martins, Cromptons and Simpsons, a genetic Unitarian, on growing up in a Unitarian family in 1960s Adelaide. That's in the Journal of the Historical Society of South Australia, which in the way of these things is available online. Our organisations file have things like this flyer, is this the church that you're looking for? It also has a jubilee commemoration and social gathering on the 13th of October 1905 where Miss Spence read a poem and there was music, addresses and refreshments. And 50 years later, we have the program for a centenary service on the 16th of October 1955 with the first lesson read by the Lieutenant Governor and the second lesson by Sir Arthur Rymel. In our theatre program collection is an afternoon concert at the Unitarian Meeting House in 1991. And 
I can see that music is an incredibly important part of the church, which is wonderful. And importantly, the library receives your newsletter. And at the 2011 census, there were about 400 Unitarians in South Australia. And I'm so glad that you've got such a wonderful website and your latest newsletter online. So in closing, it's been lovely to be here with you talking about the formative years of the Unitarian Meeting House. Thank you. you've enjoyed this Expanding Horizons podcast. These podcasts are the intellectual property of the presenter. They can be used only with the express permission and appropriate acknowledgement of the presenter. This permission can be obtained by emailing admin at unitariansa.org.au. Please feel free to leave a comment or visit us on Facebook or Twitter by searching SA Unitarians or by visiting our website at unitariansa.org.au.